Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Every week I intend to preach on a larger chunk of scripture. We're going to be in the book of John until 2028. (laughs) But I just don't have it in me. Get focused on one thing and I'm, I'm lost in it. But we'll see. We'll see what happens in coming weeks. You'll remember from last time that we focused on the friendship and love of Jesus toward his men and uh, what that meant. And unlike a slave and master relationship, Jesus taught his men just exactly what he was doing for their good. He did not leave them in the dark about the mission upon which his father had sent him. And so I addressed then authority from two sides, our obedience to Christ, right, our obedience to Christ, obeying the things he says, our obedience to Christ is not contrary to love. Obedience is not contrary to love, but it is how we know we love him. Jesus said, after all, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, So love is not devoid of obedience as much as uh, people would like to assume today. And the other angle that we talked about as far as authority is this. When we have authority, one of the ways we love those who are under our authority is to explain to them the mission. Make sure they know what's going on. Make sure they know that, uh, uh, you know, where you're headed. Jesus said, all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So love, you know, remember the bookends here of uh, verses 12 and 17. All of these verses are packed in this bookend of love. So love motivates our obedience when we're under authority and then motivates our open communication with those we lead. Okay? Love in submission obeys, and love in leadership gives knowledge, okay? And those things are very important to good, uh, good submission and good leadership. So now we continue in this passage. We learn more about the love of Christ toward us. Remember the context, though. Remember this, John 15. We are, uh, Jesus is hours away from his death. Hours away. He knows he's going away, and he's told his, his disciples about his departure, and he's also told them what great benefits are going to come when he departs. He is giving his friends, these men who have spent three years learning about his mission, he's giving his friends their final encouragement before he sheds his innocent blood for their salvation. He sheds... He, he, even, even hours before he goes to the cross, he's giving and giving and giving and giving. He's explaining the mission. He's telling them what's coming. He's setting them out in the right trajectory. He's giving them a push in the right direction. He called them friends, and now he says to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And of course, this could just refer to the fact that 
It was Jesus who said to these men, follow me. He chose them as his apostles. He chose them as disciples. He chose them as uh, those who would carry on the message that he was giving to them. It doesn't mean more than that. It certainly does mean that, but it doesn't mean more than that. Well, just a few verses ahead, verse 19, if you look at it. After Jesus warns them that they would be hated just as he was hated, Jesus explains to them why the world would hate them. And this is, how, this is what he says. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Now, we'll get into those verses next time, but for now... Notice what Jesus says about his choosing these men. He says, I chose you out of the world. Jesus tells these men who are about to lose him in this world that his love and friendship toward them had not started with their choice of him, but that it had started with his choice of them, and that choice was a decision to choose them out of the world. It didn't start with their choice of him, it started with his choice to bring them out of the world. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, we can say this. These men are not followers of Christ because they were smart enough to figure out who Jesus was while everybody else was, was not smart or sophisticated enough to figure out who this man was. It was not their smarts. It was not their education. It was not their moral superiority or their good looks that led them to follow Christ. None of that. Rather, it was the initiative of Christ that led them to leave behind the world and all of its idols and follow him as the Son of God. In other words, it was the grace of God that allowed them to know who he is and what drew them to leave behind everything. They left everything to follow Christ. It was the grace of God that allowed these men to see that the world which lies in the power of the evil one was not their home. It was the grace of God, the choice of God, the work of God in them even while they were dead in their trespasses and sins. It was that which opened their eyes to the corruption of the world, to the very holiness of God. It's the same with every person who is born again, you and me included. You will not know about the corruption of the world or the holiness of God until God chooses you, till God opens up your eyes, till God regenerates you. And so you have no boast before God. His choice of you destroys every boast. It destroys every boast you might have ever foolishly expressed before God as an argument to attract his love. The love of God, the friendship of God is by God's choice. The love of God, the friendship of God is by God's initiative. The love of God, the friendship of God starts with the Almighty God. Believers are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Calvin says on this, There is nothing which ought more powerfully to kindle in us the desire of a holy and religious life than when we acknowledge that we owe everything to God. 
and that we have nothing that is our own, that both the commencement of our salvation, all the parts that follow from it, flow from his undeserved mercy. We have nothing that is our own. That's why Christianity, I always say, is self-annihilation. It is all God. We can also say this, and this is where I focus, and I think this is the purpose of this passage. We, we could, I, we could um, isolate this passage and make it about the doctrine of election, but um, I, th- I think it's more important to take a different direction with this. These men were chosen out of the world for a purpose. These particular men he's talking to in this passage, okay? The apostles, the disciples. And I think really this is the main thrust of the passage. The purpose they were chosen out of the world, out of the domain of the evil one, was to preach the gospel to that corrupted and fallen world. They were chosen for that purpose, to preach. They were called to bring the light of the gospel to a dark, dark world. And so this choice is about office. This choice he's talking about is about office as apostles for the Lord. They would occupy the office of apostle and go out into the world as Christ's ambassadors. And so remember, as Jesus speaks these words, they are walking toward his crucifixion. They're actually on the road, moving toward where he would be crucified. The darkness of the world would never be greater than a few hours into the future when the very skies would go black. As Jesus endured the very wrath of his Father. These men are currently confused about all of that. Not really understanding what Jesus is saying to them and what's actually going to happen and missing things that we think are so obvious but they, they didn't get. They are probably scared to death. He's saying some weird things. He's doing weird things. Where are we going? Is he going to die? What's this about three days? And, and, and they're fearful, ready, and, and likely they're probably ready to abandon Jesus just as soon as Jesus departs from them. Regardless, Jesus tells them they've got work to do. And he's chosen them out of the world to get that work done with the powerful help of this Holy Spirit who's going to come and it's going to be even better than if I were here. He's set them apart. He's taken them and given them a calling. By the work of the Spirit, their preaching will be even, get this, Their preaching, these men, these mere men, their preaching will be better than the preaching of Jesus Christ. Which most people rejected. And it's better because when the apostles preached, most people didn't reject it. They heard it and repented and believed. These men would preach and be heard. Jesus preached and was told to get out of town. And so these, these men are, are the men, you know, these are the greater works than his own that Jesus told these men they would do. So in the hours before his death, Jesus is telling these men of their mission. He's being a good leader. 
He's telling them the mission. He's loving them by revealing to them that they have work to do by his sovereign commission, and they must be diligent and faithful to do the work of the apostles. He's telling them that they will go out, do things that he has done, preaching and teaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Think of the fruit of the apostles. This church is standing and we're worshiping here because of the preaching of the apostles. Think of the apostle Paul. Just think of the apostle Paul, um, an ugly, short Jewish man. Unimpressive. A Hebrew of Hebrews, though, zealous, a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer of the Son of God. I mean, if, if we had run into Paul before his conversion, he would have locked us up. He would have had no time for us other than to take us before the authorities. He was a blasphemer of the Son of God. He was a Pharisee who breathed threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. The last thing he thought of himself and the last thing others thought of him while he was on the road to Damascus was that he had already been appointed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That's the last thing anybody would have ever said of the Apostle Paul. Yet at that moment when he fell to the ground... When a light from heaven flashed around him, this waste of a pagan, this hater of God, this blasphemer, would never have chosen to serve Jesus. But as it was, he had already been chosen to serve Jesus. There was nothing he could do about God's choice of him to be an apostle. Absolutely nothing. To Ananias, the Lord said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The apostle Paul did not choose Christ, but Christ chose him of all people. And appointed him that he would go and bear fruit. In hindsight, the Apostle Paul would say, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And then he goes on to explain his process. Whose choice was it that led this hater of God, this hater of Christ, this persecutor of God's people to become a preacher of Christ? God. God who had set him apart even before he was born, yes, even before he was conceived. God had set apart the Apostle Paul. 
I mean, what glory? God chose these men and think of their fruit. Think of how puny these men are. Just not getting much of what Jesus is saying when he's around, right? Saying the wrong things and, and just, you know, they're, they're clueless. And then having the honor of doing greater works than Jesus did. Think of how unimpressive these men were. Think of how unlikely it would be that these fishermen and tax collectors and, and little men would, would, would be to, to set the world on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, James and John and Peter probably had a lucrative family business to take over. They could have supplied fish for the next however many years and died satisfied that they had contributed to society by supplying fish. But there is one thing that would not allow that. There was one thing that would take them out of the business they had trained to do well for their whole lives. There was one thing that took them out of the family trade there was one thing that brought them from being fishers to being fishers of men, and that was the choice of God. The appointment of God, the very calling of God, that's what took them out of that lucrative business that their fathers were probably pleading with them to stay in and honor him. Now, certainly their, their election and salvation was by God's choice, but more than that, their ordination was by God's choice. God, by means of these men and the Holy Spirit in them, would spread the truth of, of His grace in Jesus Christ, His mercy in Jesus Christ. They were chosen for that task by Jesus Himself. Now, God still chooses men today for the same purpose. God chooses men for the same purpose. God chooses men to preach his gospel today, dear brothers and sisters. And I'm not using the generic masculine here. Men, male men. Not USPS, but... You, you. God chooses men to preach the gospel. And man, I pray for God to put his ordination on man and men today. I pray for this all the time. There is a spectacular need for preachers today. Wouldn't you agree? There's a huge need for preachers today. We live in Vanity Fair and everywhere we turn we're being entertained so so that we don't have to think about death and heaven and hell and eternity and God's wrath. We're fixated on our income. We're fixated on our, our investments. We're fixated on, on our boastful pride of life. And souls are headed to hell. Souls are headed to hell. Or you just don't think hell is real. Maybe that's it. 
It is a wicked and perverse generation, but there is a Savior. There is a Savior, and he still uses men called to preach and pastor and to spread the same gospel that the Apostle Paul preached, to spread the good news. Where are the men today called from their mother's womb? Where are the men who cry out like Paul, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel? You know, where are the young men who care, the young men who care more about eternal things than temporal things? Where are they? I don't see many of them. Where are the preachers and teachers of the salvation that comes through Christ alone? Why is there not a desire to preach it? It's the most glorious, it's the only thing worth knowing. It's just the most glorious thing in, in all of this world. It's, it's more precious than the most precious jewels. It makes me think of, of Calvin's encounter with William Farrell. By God's sovereign plan, one night in 1536, John Calvin is traveling out to get out of France because of persecution, and the roads to Strasbourg were blocked by Charles V's troops. And he has to take a detour, and he ends up coming through the city gates of a place called Geneva. As soon as Farrell heard that Calvin was in Geneva, he went straight to him and absolutely pounded him into the ground. He cursed his studies if he left and did not help him pastor the city church of Geneva. And here's what Calvin writes about that encounter in his preface to his commentary on the Psalms. Hey, listen to this. It's very helpful. Calvin says, William Farrell detained me at Geneva, not so much by counsel and exhortation as by a dreadful imprecation, which I felt to be, now listen to this, this is so important, which I felt to be as if God had from heaven laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me. And after learning that, my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties. So he was like, nope, not staying. He proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, by this imprecation, I felt like a victim and I told William Farrell that he was being mean. That's what he said. No, that's not Calvin. <laughs> that's how we would respond because we are weak in the faith. 
By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. Now, what is extraordinary about this situation is not the zeal of Pharrell. He was notoriously fiery. I mean, this is how he preached. This was his character. I mean, he went into Geneva without Calvin and, and stirred things up and everywhere, everywhere else he went. What is extraordinary is Calvin's willingness to see God behind the words of this man, Pharaoh. He heard God's voice through that man's preaching to him. Pharaoh's imprecation was to Calvin as if God from heaven laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me. God made it clear that intense night that he had chosen Calvin for the work of ministry, of preaching, of pastoring, of serving Christ's bride instead of serving the academy. I am afraid that most men today would have just left the meeting with Pharrell with a heap of resentment and a mouth filled with scoffing at this old man. This old man who's just overbearing and can't he just get on with the work himself? Who does he think he is? He doesn't know me. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have my good in mind. He's just all about the church and, and Geneva and, and these souls. He what about my good? What about my reputation? Doesn't he know how helpful I can be to people as a lawyer? Doesn't he know that? Doesn't he care? I mean, far from being struck with terror, we'd be struck with anger. We would leave that meeting so angry. I am working hard, and why would he, why would he lay that on my shoulders? Well, God had chosen Calvin, and though his work in Geneva would be worse than a thousand deaths, that's what he said, he would give himself to it faithfully until he died. He even got kicked out of town for three years shortly after this and even came back. Even though that's when he said, I'd rather stay in Strasbourg than it's like dying a hundred deaths to go back. I know it is hard to attract men to the preaching of the gospel and the pastoral ministry. There are some ambitious men who lead in the church, not because they have a calling, but because they are hirelings and desire to fleece the sheep. To serve as a pastor without God's calling leads to all kind of trouble. But is God calling men today? Is God calling men to the ministry today? Is God calling you to the ministry? Is there any need for faithful preachers and faithful shepherds today? Oh, brothers, the need, the need is so great. The church suffers because men reject the calling of God on their lives when they cling to this world and what she has to offer and do not have eternity before them. Has God 
appointed you to bear the kind of fruit that comes with ordination. Has God appointed you to carry this weight, to endure its specific challenges, to to preach in season and out of season, so that Christ might be formed in the people of the church? Who desires... Who desires to labor in the fields that are white for harvest? Bringing the fruit of saved souls, the eternal fruit of saved souls. I mean, I don't mean to insult anyone here who is providing for his family by various means. Information technology, engineering, cleaning, sales, welding, construction, writing contracts, teaching college. I don't mean to despair. Those are all fine vocations, and you have a call to do all things to the glory of God. Okay? So do it. But for the called, but for the called, the called, for, for those chosen for ordination to the pastorate, those set apart to preach the gospel Those vocations seem way too superficial. I'm not trying to insult you. I'm telling you for the called, those for for men called to the ministry, those things will seem so, so superficial as to not be worthy of their time. For those called to preach the gospel, to shepherd the saints, to be ministers of the word and sacraments, stewards of the mysteries of God. The idea of sending emails and shuffling papers for a Fortune 500 company will be troubling and disgusting and depressing. Now, it may be tempting for some of you who hate your job (laughs) to hear what I'm saying and think it would be much more satisfying to do something, you know, more directly tied to eternal value. No. No, not without God's calling. No, don't do it. Not without God's call on you. Trust me, it would be awful. It would be depressing, it would be painful to be a pastor without God's call and choice and ordination of you. So I'm not urging you to pursue the ministry so that you will be satisfied in your work. That's not what I'm doing. Rather, I'm urging those who may be called not to forsake their calling. And I'm hopeful God will raise up workers then who give their lives to the church. The church, Christ's bride, his eternal bride, the one for whom he died and shed his blood and and will clothe her in those white linens. The reason the apostles were able to take the gospel to the world was because of God's choice of them. Because of that choice, they produced fruit and the kind of fruit that remains, right? In other words, God used them to produce disciples of Christ, souls that were eternally saved. And they asked for that kind of fruit in their prayers. They asked for it and God gave them to it. God gave them that fruit. 
They were the kind of men who wrote letters, like the ones we read in the New Testament, right? Those are prayers to God. Those are, those are sermons. Those are prayers. Those are a little bit of everything. And in them, you see men who are filled with concern for the eternal resting place of immortal souls. Heaven or hell. And filled with praises for the gracious, merciful, loving, everlasting, triune God. That's what they gave themselves to, just talking about that all the time, preaching that all the time. Where are those men chosen by God to preach the gospel in this era of Christ's church? Where are they? Where are the men today like Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man who was on track to be physician to the Queen of England? He was a doctor. He was going to be the number one doctor in the whole of England. Who would say that that kind of work is not good? I mean, being a doctor, glorious work. But for the man who is called, he can't shake the thought that he must be working on souls, not merely on bodies. Okay, souls and bodies, if you don't want me to be too, um, whatever it's called. Lloyd-Jones, reflecting on God's calling on him to be a pastor, said, we spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. He's talking about when he was a doctor. We render most of the time people fit to go back to their sin. I want to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is all right, he is all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a distressed soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face eternity in hell. It is likely that we would conclude that Lloyd-Jones was misunderstanding the Protestant work ethic. Right? Or, or that he missed the, the reformed doctrine of vocation. Or more cynically, that he was just a fanatic who, who became a pastor because he lost interest in medicine. But that would be to dismiss God's calling on him. Right? For those called to preach the gospel, you will have the same holy dissatisfaction that Lloyd-Jones had. You will care more for eternal things than for temporal things. And you just won't be able to shake it. You won't be able to shake it. So again, where are those men today, chosen by God, who are weighed down with knowledge of what is to come? Where are those who think more about the day of judgment than they do about Facebook. <laughs> it's so painful to even say that. <sighs> Where are those men who are loosed from overvaluing worldly success? Where are those men who are unsatisfied when they relieve someone's earthly suffering while they know nothing about eternal life in Christ. 
And so may God choose some of you men who are listening today to experience that kind of holy discontentment. Holy discontentment. And may his choice of you lead to pulpits filled with those who truly love you, warn you to flee from the wrath of come and admonish you night and day with tears. That's what we need, right? That's what the church needs. That's what our country needs. That's what our state needs. That's what our city needs. That's what the whole world needs is the pulpits of the church to preach the love and grace and mercy and coming wrath of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be some that will be called to it. Don't forsake your calling. Run after it. And, and scratch that itch of discontentment, that holy discontentment you have. Let's, let's ask God now to do this. Let's pray to him and ask him to do it. Our Father, we pray that you would stir up in the men of this church, the men who have been sitting under this sermon, the men in Evangel Presbytery, the men in this nation who profess your name, I pray that you would stir up in them this, this holy discontentment and that they would not be, that you would, you would make them unsatisfied until they were doing as you have called them to do, which is to preach the word, to be stewards of the mystery of God, to be, to be um, ready in season and out of season. Father, to be lovers of souls. And so, Father, we ask that you would do this work, that your Holy Spirit would work mightily, and that you would raise up men who would labor in the harvest because the fields are white. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.